0: Okay, so we have come to the last sermon, we've come to the end of 2 Timothy, and there's uh, quite a lot of verses to read, a few things to say about it, but mainly what I wanted to do this morning, which I thought really wrapped things up really well, was actually use these verses to kind of recap on some of the major points from the letter and then uh, I want to, do, the goal for this morning is to, to do that, to, you know, exegete this text, um, show us how, what the text is pointing to with some of these main points from the book itself, and then actually end with a lead into what is coming next. So what is coming after 2 Timothy, and why it would even relate to what we've just done the last uh, nine to ten weeks. Twenty times, basically, through 2 Timothy, if you've also been tuning in or coming to Bible study. So we've spent a significant time in this text. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it for us, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we will get started. Starting in verse 6. Paul says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychikos to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me a great deal of harm the lord will repay him for what he has done you too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message at my first offense no one came to my support but everyone deserted me may it not be held against them but the lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the gen- and all the gentiles might hear and i was delivered from the lion's mouth the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Great Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus, Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so does Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. So, for the first part of this text, Paul is speaking about his own ministry. And he's talking about finishing strong. He's finishing strong. And he even says that my life is being poured out as a drink offering. Now a drink offering is what um, in a traditional sense might be called a libation. It's a ritual offering of wine. And this would have been done in the Old Testament under the Levitical law and it would have been poured out. So when, when people would come and make sacrifices to the Lord, a portion of the sacrifice would go to Yahweh, and then another portion of the sacrifice would be left for the priests to eat. But with a drink offering, it was completely poured out to God, and it was only God who drank it. And so in some sense, what this meant was it was a sign of rest and completion. This is one of the reasons that it would only be performed when Israel entered the promised land, Leviticus 23.10 tells us. So it was a special kind of offering that really signified, as I said, a a rest or a completion dedicated to the Lord. It might bring to mind what Jesus said about his own blood being poured out for the covenant and being signified as wine. For Paul, this would have been symbolic of the sacrificial work of the worshiper. He was dedicating his life to the Lord. Christ's work was sacrificial for the church. Paul's life was sacrificial for Christ and his church. So both Christ and Paul's death uh, involved sacrifice. And that's the life that we are called to as well. This is why Jesus says, if you are going to come after me, you must take up your cross and follow me. This isn't, the cross isn't the necklace that you wear. There's nothing wrong with that. But, and the cross isn't just burdens. The cross is an instrument of death. Your life is a sacrifice unto the Lord. If you are going to follow after me, Christ says, you must leave yourself behind and pick up your instrument of death, this cross, this instrument of sacrifice, and come after me. So the life of a believer is characterized by a life of sacrifice. Not just sacrifice for family or sacrifice for loved ones, but a sacrifice unto the Lord. The life that you live is to be like Paul in a sense where you look back and you say, my life has been poured out as a drink offering. The whole thing belongs to God. Now that doesn't mean that every single one of us are going to be persecuted unto death like Paul was. But the sacrificial idea means that we don't get to sit on the fence. We don't get to hold some of the world and hold some of our Lord and think that we get to teeter totter between the two. That's not what it means to take up your cross. It means you have died to self. And Paul said that earlier, right? In 2 Timothy. If you have died with Christ, you will live with Christ. But you have to die with Christ in order to live with him. You have to pick up that cross. So Paul is an example of this. and Paul shows us that his life was dedicated to Christ. He says he has fought the good fight He has finished the course. He has kept the faith. Paul led a consistently faithful and dedicated life to our Lord. It wasn't perfect, but it was consistent. So he can use the imagery like he does earlier in the text of an athlete and a farmer and a soldier Why? Because all three of those require consistent dedication. So a question we have to ask ourselves is, do we want to live a faithful life dedicated to Christ? Are we willing to make that sacrifice for the Lord? Are you willing to die to self so that you can live with Christ, or are you just trying to live with Christ without having to die for self? For me, one of the things that was a life-changing perspective for, for this was that um, I, for a while I tend to, I, and, and maybe some of us are in this boat, I know certainly there are plenty out there who are, but salvation tended to be very me-focused. I, I had a, a shallow understanding of salvation where it was all about um, Jesus save me and give me my, my ticket to heaven. Right, I mean that's that, but that's that's not uncommon. Save me, Lord. I recognize that I am not perfect. I recognize I am a sinner in need of a Savior. That's a good place to be. But um, sometimes when salvation becomes all about just hey, you need to get justified before the Lord. You need to get saved it can almost get to a place where we go, okay, I'm saved, but now what? I'm, I'm, I'm saved, I, I'm going to heaven, but what does this life look like? And what needed to change from my perspective was it needed to leave a me focus and go and focus on a him focus, right? That's him focused. Well, what does that mean? It means recognizing that he is king of creation, right? John 1 tells us, not only is he one with God, but through him, all things have been made. Without him, nothing is made. He is king and Lord of creation, and he has established his kingship in the new creation, which I am now a citizen, a blood-bought citizen of the new creation, so what needs to change, from my perspective, was not just recognizing that, hey, I'm, I'm saved now, but recognizing that I have new allegiance. My allegiance is no longer to the king of this world, my allegiance is no longer to me sitting on the throne of my life, but now my allegiance is to the king of kings and the lord of lords, the only one who is worthy to sit on the throne, I don't know if you were, anyone was listening to the song as they came in this morning, but that's what the song uh, was saying. It was saying, Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone uh, capable to, to open the seal and, and read the scroll? He is worthy. He is the King of Kings. And he did this through the cross and resurrection. But one of the things that for a lot in the church, a lot of people in the church that needs to shift is we need to we need to see that a, the major element of our salvation in the cross and in the resurrection is that it established a new kingdom to which now we are citizens of. We belong to a new kingdom. We think differently. We have a new allegiance. We have a new citizenship. That's why we're aliens in this world. We're sojourners. And so, as I live this life for Christ, it's not me focused anymore. Sure, me, I, I, I myself, my sin, my selfish desires, they creep in all the time, but, but the life that I'm trying and dedicated to living is, and, and desire to live is a life of dedication to my king. And that's what Paul recognizes here. And that's why he can say, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, he says, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul expects a crown of righteousness. This is similar to James uh, 1.12. a crown of life. Now there's some discussion on what this means, but when you look at the way that the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory is used throughout the New Testament, what Paul is saying is not that he's um, not that he's looking for not or I'm sorry, I'm trying to <laughs> reiterate how I'm saying here, not that he doesn't have life or righteousness but that he's looking forward to the day when he is constantly and consistently in this new world that God is setting up and establishing where righteousness will be constant. Glory will be constant because he'll be in a glorified state. That's what we are all looking forward to. Not to go too far ahead, but this is why Alexander and Paul are in such opposition because Alexander opposes that the resurrection is coming. He says it's already happened. And for Paul, that's a big deal because if you think that the resurrection isn't coming, then there's no hope. There's no hope for another resurrection. There's no hope for glory. The world will just continue in this sinful state, cycle after cycle. But Paul looks forward this, this crown. This is the prize at the end of the race. It's this permanent state of righteousness that we will be in if we are in Christ. That's what he says. It will be for all of us who have longed for his appearing. Now, for some of your translations, it says, who have loved his appearing. The point that the passage is getting at is that the crown is for those who live with this longing and love for Christ's return. We have a love for him. We have a desire for him. We can't wait to be with him. When Paul says, for me to live is Christ, right? He's dedicated here on earth, but to die is gain. Why? Because he's longing to be with Christ. That's the place we Christians, that's where we need to be. That's, that's the way our life is characterized. I, I, I live for Christ, the sacrifice, I take up my cross because to die I recognize his gain. Like I'm looking forward to when I get to be with my Lord and Savior and I'm looking forward to if I don't die first that he appears in his second coming. So one of the things that we need to be doing is we need to be examining our desires each day And we need to be asking our Lord that he would conform our desires into his desires. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need to be transformed. We need our minds to be renewed. But it has to come from a desire to actually do it. You, You have to want the Lord. You have to love the Lord. You have to long for Him. And I'll get more into how we do this at the very end here. But we've got verses 9 through 22 to cover here pretty quickly. A lot of details. I'm not going to get into every name here. <laughs> Names... No matter how many times you practice, you read through it, and you you get stuck on some of these names. Is it a long U? Is it a short O? Well, why couldn't they just be like Michael, Smith, John? (laughs) Verses 9 through 22 as a whole, okay, is how we're going to look at it. And what verses 9 through 22 characterize for us is the need for Christian community. If we're going to live this life, if we're going to run this race, and we're going to run well, then we need Christian community. Paul seeks the comfort of community after he has dealt with um, abandonment. Paul faces, and he writes it out here, he faces multiple losses. Faces a lot of opposition. Demas abandoned Paul for the world. That's. What he did. Demas has left me. He's left me for the world. Demas was a trusted worker. He's mentioned in Colossians, he's mentioned in Philemon as a fellow worker with Paul. But what Paul says here is, is at some point between then and now, or maybe it was already in the process of happening, Demas fell in love with the present world, and he apostatized. He left. It probably did happen over a period of time. If you were to ask Demas at the time of the writing of Colossians or when he's with Paul and working in the ministry, he probably would not have said, oh yeah, you know, I'm just doing this for a season here and then uh, I'm going to bail on Paul go back to the world. We need to be careful not to think we are above the deceptions and the enticements of the world. Lest we too fall. And we need to be aware when this love for the world starts to creep in, because it does creep in for each and every one of us. I pray that as Christians we we recognize that, that we are not above the enticing of the world, we are not above the deceptions of the world. And so when it starts to creep in, we, we need to be able to discern this is from the world versus this is from the Lord. And a lot of people, they, they, they get very um, confused with that. And sometimes it becomes a, um, you know, they'll say something like, well, the Holy Spirit told me and the Holy Spirit's leading me this way and, and that's good as long as it aligns with the Word of God because there are a lot of people who feel led by the Holy Spirit or led by a spirit and it's not the Holy Spirit because what they are led into doesn't align with the Word of God. And so it makes them feel comfortable. It makes them feel good. But we as Christians need to be able to discern And this comes from developing a biblical worldview. It comes from knowing scripture, right? I mean, even Jesus, when he's in the desert being tempted by the devil, he doesn't appeal to his desires. He appeals to the word of God. He appeals to the biblical worldview that has been established because it's God's word. And if you read that passage in Matthew, he quotes Deuteronomy, So how do we get this biblical worldview? Well, we need accountability in order to get it. We need accountability ultimately from the Lord, but we also need accountability from the church. So a couple things that, um, and, and I'll, go quickly here but a couple things that need to be understood is like we've talked about going through Second Timothy's there's a need for us to be getting in the word having that as a high priority the highest priority to be feasting on the word of God it builds our relationship with the Lord it, 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 this is what renews our mind so that we can discern truth from lie Now, if you remember, I I, I talked a a few weeks ago when we started chapter two about this idea of grace. And what I was saying was, we have grace unto salvation, but it is also only by God's grace that we are sanctified and growing in Christ as well. And the way that God gives this grace is through different means, specifically. One of which... Being getting in the Word of God, another one being prayer, there are there, there is grace that is poured out on us when we are in the Word of God, when we are in prayer, that we are actually missing out on when we are not doing these things, and it is grace unto our sanctification, so if you are neglecting the Word of God, if you are neglecting prayer you will not be receiving that grace from the Lord. You will not be sanctified. It won't happen. You can put on a show, you can white-knuckle yourself to, to, to look you know, a certain way and, and maybe white-knuckle out of certain sin patterns, but you're not actually being sanctified if it's separated from prayer and from the Word of God. It's behavior modification at that point. But that's not the only place that God pours out His grace. He's also designed it to be poured out in the corporate gathering. We talked about the Lord's Supper. We talked about the sermon, the sanctifying work of the sermon, where God speaks through His word as it is proclaimed. And it is a grace that God pours out to conform us into the image of His Son. We talked about worship. There is a grace. That is poured out when we are worshiping the Lord. We talked about how this worship is actually um, a way of spiritual battle, that God has designed music, as we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that God has designed music as a way of spiritual warfare. This is why our demeanors can change. If you come into church, sometimes you're really down and and lonely, and there can be some amazing worship songs that uplift your soul. Why? It's spiritual warfare. You're in battle. Baptism, giving, fellowship, these are things that God has designed for his children to consistently participate in in order to be sanctified. This is the way God has designed it. I didn't write it out this way. Rome didn't write it out this way. Martin Luther and the Reformers didn't write it out this way. It's what the Word says. You need to be consistently participating in these things if you are going to be growing as a child of God. And if you neglect these things, you will not be growing and you are much more susceptible to being swayed by the world. This is why, if if any of us have been part of churches for very long, we notice that the ones who don't come consistently are the ones who backslide. And when they stop coming more and more, the further they spiral out of control. So that's Demas. Demas has fallen in love with the world and he's left Paul. Then he says, Alexander has been continuing to oppose Paul's message. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.13 that Alexander is a blasphemer. He blasphemes God because he opposes the future resurrection, denying the hope of the faith. Sometimes we think of blaspheming as just like when someone, you know, uses the word of God as a, as a cuss word. And true, that's blasphemy. But it's also a lot deeper than that. Blaspheming is when you oppose the work of God. You are blaspheming him. You are opposing him. And then Paul himself admits in 1 Timothy 1 as well that he was a blasphemer in his zealous ignorance. For this um, covenant community, he was a blasphemer because he didn't recognize the Christ and he opposed the Christ. In fact, Paul and Alexander, since Alexander most likely was a Jew in Ephesus, are examples that you can be religious and still be a blasphemer. You can be religious and still oppose God. When we support something that is ungodly, we are blaspheming the Lord. Even if you think you are doing it for God, or in the name of God as Paul did? I wanted to read quickly here from Isaiah about this. Isaiah 5, starting in verse 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if With cart ropes, who say, Let him make speed, let him hasten his work, that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass, that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Isaiah is not writing this to the non-believer or to someone who, who isn't part of the church. He's writing this to the people of Israel, the ones who are very religious, the ones who seem to or should at least know God well. Woe to those who call Good, evil, and evil, good. Woe to those who call darkness light and light darkness. Those who think they are clever and wise in their own eyes. And then Proverbs 17, 15. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. We as Christians have to think especially in the world that we live in now. We have to be discerning and think carefully and pray about the those who we join ourselves with. And the reason why I bring this up is because it's happening all over the place. We have to be very very careful as Christ followers that we are not opposing God by locking arms with those who hate him. Why is this? Why why, why is this so important? Because we cannot join ourselves, we cannot unite ourselves to those who oppose God. We are called to approach this world and the problems in this world from a position that is distinctly Christian. Christian. That is distinctly biblical. Even if it seems like the world and the church are on the same page in what they want to accomplish, the reality is we're not. And the reason why we're not is because we are built on two completely different foundations. We, as Christians, are built on the foundation of the Word of God and His love. And his kingship, and the world is built on rebellion and idols. The reason this is so important, and the reason I bring it up with someone like Alexander, is because we don't really tend to look at blasphemy that way. We're not very discerning about that anymore. And so we tend to think, well, hey, you know, they're not Christians, but, uh, you know, they, they seem to want the same thing I want, so we're, we're good. We'll march, we'll, we'll have events together. James tells us that we should be caring about these things. Care for the widow, care for the orphan. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and remain unstained by the world. So we need to care about the things in our world that the church is called to care about. But we are to do so in a way that is unstained by the world. Why do we have to stay unstained by the world? Because if we are stained by the world, it's blasphemy. Because foundationally, it opposes the message of God. A lot of what we talked about in Timothy has been built on what foundation do we stand on? When we are to minister to others, when we are to deal with false teachers, when we are to deal with the world, it all comes back to what foundation are we built on. And Paul's saying, if you're going to run this race well, you need to be built on the right foundation. Otherwise, we will be led into the love of the world. Otherwise, we will be led into uh, blasphemy, even a blasphemy of, of ignorance. The last group that Paul brings up, as far as those who have abandoned him, is Paul's fellow workers. He says, They scattered at my first trial. Paul was alone, but he still considered himself in good company. Because Jesus was abandoned in his trial. Paul says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Paul recognized that, yes, though my co-workers of the faith have scattered, just like the disciples scattered when Jesus was arrested, I was not alone. The Lord was there with me, and he gave me the strength. He empowered me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and I trusted in him as my Lord and as my protector. There will be times of fear as we live out a faithful calling from the Lord. We will wrestle and deal with times of fear when we are seeking to run the race well, when we are seeking to um, fulfill the ministry that God has called us to. I actually think that's one of the main reasons that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. If you look towards the beginning of the letter, it does seem to be that Timothy had some fear and some timidity. And I would actually venture to say that if there are no times of fear, if you're never wrestling with fear with your faith, then it might be because you're actually not doing what the Lord has called you to. A grave sin that nobody wants to bring up. I brought this up on Wednesday when I was talking to the guys from Wayside. I said, what is there a sin That so many of us struggle with that we just don't want to talk about. And the one that comes to mind for most people is lust. I actually think there's an even bigger one that most men especially don't want to talk about it's cowardice. It is by cowardice. That Adam stayed silent as Eve was tempted. It is by cowardice that Abraham listened to his wife Sarah instead of God and had a child with Hagar. It is by cowardice that David tried to hide his sin. It is by cowardice that the disciples fled at Jesus' arrest. It is cowardice that led Peter to eat with the Jews and separate himself from the Gentiles. We sometimes call it passivity. The Bible calls it cowardice. We have to be bold Christians. And Paul already said, we no longer have a spirit of cowardice. We have been given a spirit of courage we've been given a spirit of power and god certainly can and does forgive our cowardless cowardice but left unchanged the bible tells us that it is a damnable sin revelation 21:8 but the cowardly the unbelieving the vile the murderers the sexually immoral those who practice magic arts the idolaters and all liars they will be co- consigned to to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. See, cowardice is listed among sexual immorality, unbelief, vile behavior, murder. Cowardice is a very, very serious sin. Now we look at these this story, right? A lot of stories of cowardice throughout scripture have great moments of redemption later on. And Paul even says that he wants the Lord to to not hold it against these these people who 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 fled. Right? There there but that just even more shows that there needs to be forgiveness. There needs to be repentance. We are called And we've seen this all throughout 2 Timothy that we are called to be Christians who are bold in proclaiming the faith. And yes, if we are bold in proclaiming the faith, we will wrestle with that fear and sometimes we'll even fail and give in to that fear. But there is a there is a fear that comes from sharing the faith where we fail. And there is a cowardice that keeps us from ever even attempting it. And then Paul recognizes his need for the Christian community. So he's been opposed and uh, hurt by these examples: these Demas, Alexander, the, the the people who have fled at his trial. But there's comfort to be had. There's a need for the Christian community. As Paul says, he, he needs Timothy and Mark to come and comfort him. That's what he says. Come and, 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 and bring me comfort. When we are running the race for Christ, we will face lonely times where we need the comfort of the church. We need the comfort of the brothers around us. Notice how Paul doesn't say, all I needed or wanted was God. I didn't really need you guys anyway. No, what he says is, I wanted people there. I needed your comfort. But in the end, I rest in the Lord. It is the Lord who who brought him comfort. But ideally, God wants us in community, encouraging one another, comforting each other. But church has become much more optional. Some of us, we find comfort in other things instead and other people instead, people who are more like-minded with us maybe, people who share the same background with us, people on our block, people we grew up with. But Paul's saying that the comfort that he needs is from those that he has run the race with those that he has been in the battle with for the Lord. He also says that he needed to send other workers out to continue the ministry, right? He cannot do everything himself. We are not meant to do everything ourselves. We need to learn and develop the ways that God has gifted us and pursue the personal ministries that God has called us to. And we need to encourage others to do the same. And then he reminds Timothy of the appreciation he has for God's work beyond just himself. This is in verse 19 where he says, Greet Prissa and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus, Erastus remained at Corinth. He's listing these other people. He's recognizing as his letter comes to a close and as his life comes to a close that the ministry continues after him. The work of the gospel will continue after we are gone. The church will remain. And Paul set things up to continue after the Lord called him home. He's discipled others. He was faithful in his ministry. He was bold with the truth of the gospel. So a question we need to ask ourselves is, are we working unto the Lord in such a way that those who come after us can learn from us and can pick up where we leave off? And so... The goal for this book was to show that ministry is not just for the pastor. It's not just for the elder. Ministry is not just for those who are radical Christians. Each and every one of us has been called by God to be bold ambassadors for Jesus Christ in the church and in the public square. None of us are called to be private, quiet Christians. None of us are called to neglect a work that God has prepared beforehand for us to do. And so, we need to be strengthened by the grace of God in private and corporate worship. We need to put on this spirit of courage that we've been given to boldly proclaim God's word because it's only his word as Paul also tells us in 2 Timothy 3 it's only his word that is capable of reproving and changing the heart and so the question for all of us of this entire book really boils down to who do you love? because if you love The Lord, you will be desiring to live that sacrificial life of ministering that God has called you to. Many of us want revival, but revival only comes when Christians are courageously living out their gospel ministry. It doesn't come from careful Christians. And when the church is weak and when the church is cowardice, it will reflect the world and be full of Christians who don't talk the talk or walk the walk. And therefore, because the church is cowardice and weak and doesn't have Christians that are boldly proclaiming the truth of God's word, it will also be a church that's not persecuted. There's nothing to come against. There's nothing to work against. And so things in the church need to change. And as I look out here, I think, why not start here? The Oasis. Our mission field of Aurora. And so I'll end with this. It's It's a lead, like I said, into what's coming next. The first thing is, come to Bible study and learn how God has gifted you. Learn the spiritual gifts. That's what we're doing for the next, well, now seven weeks, but this eight-week series. But even if you miss the first week, it's fine. Come and learn how has God gifted you for the ministry that he has called you to. He has a good work planned for each and every one of you who are in Christ. And he has gifted you for that. Come learn what, what that gift is. Another thing is I will also be Uh, I was doing this before the whole COVID crisis, but I will be sending out a calendar of opportunities for ministry as they come up so that if the Lord pulls at your heartstrings to come and be a part of this, you will have adequate time. So I'll be sending that out. Opportunities to um, train us as well for... Gospel ministry. And then lastly, we need to be listening very closely in three weeks when we enter into the book of James. Because the sermons from James are meant to be used for us to examine our hearts. Because maybe some of us this morning, when we ask this question of who do you love the most? maybe you don't even know the answer to that. Or maybe you're sitting here and recognizing that your life and your desires have been about your lordship instead of his lordship. So the sermons from James are meant to examine whether or not we are really sold out for the gospel, whether or not we are saved. And so I'm thankful that Second Timothy lined up so well with that because Second Timothy has such a call for us as Christians to be bold in the ministry that God's called us to, and we can't be bold in that ministry unless we're sold out for the Lord. And if we're sitting here asking whether or not we're really sold out, then as we examine ourselves in the Book of James, hopefully that helps answer those questions. So that's Second Timothy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, God, that each and every one of us would become more emboldened for the gospel. I pray that this would come from a place of falling uh, deeper in love with you, Lord, as we recognize that our allegiance is to you as our King, our Lord, our Savior, our friend. God, you have purchased us with your blood. You have made us new creations, Lord, and I pray that the time that you have given us on this earth for gospel ministry is not wasted on our own selfish desires. It is not hindered by fear. But Lord, as we read 2 Timothy, that we would recognize that we are also getting a glimpse into the life and boldness of Paul and the boldness that he wants His fellow minister Timothy to have. I pray that we would enter into this world in a way that is distinctly Christian, that we would live Christ, that we would speak Christ, that we would be salt and light to a darkened world. I thank you and I praise you. And I also pray for those in here who may be holding on to religion. Who may be lost, Lord, who may be blaspheming by opposing you, God, that you would save them, that you would make them into a new creation, that you would take their heart of stone and give them a new heart of flesh, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.